Hi, everybody, and welcome to the Cultural Studies Podcast. My name is Toby Miller, and my guest today is... Robin Goodman. And Robin, it's a delight to have you here. Thank you so much for being with us. I've got my standard first question, although it has different iterations, which is basically, would you share with us what's troubling you, dynamizing you, interesting you, preoccupying you, getting you moving, turning you on at the moment? So I was expecting that question. <laughs> um, and uh, uh, I um, have recently read this novel called uh, Tremor, which is a new novel by Teju Cole, who wrote Open City. Um, and in it, he, there's a character who's a faculty member at some Northeastern university who goes and she's an art professor and he goes into class and he asks that same student, question to his students. And his students are thinking about all sorts of interesting things like serial killers. So I decided to ask my students and see how it went. And, um, and I expected them to say what I'm sure you expected me to say, which is all we can think about really is Gaza. And they didn't say that. They were not thinking about anything. And I asked both my classes and I asked them multiple times and I kept getting the same answer. Like they're thinking about what they're going to eat next or what they're, uh, how they're going to get their car to school and things like that. Like very not about serial killers. And, uh, and I was wondering about that. That like is almost as worrisome to me as Gaza. Um, this uh, kind of um, inability of people to articulate um, what their concerns are and how they're living and what their conditions of life are. And um, except for like really mundane things of like what they're going to cook or things like that, or when they're going to shop. Um, and uh I find that it leads into certain kinds of intellectual concerns I've had recently about subjectivity. Um, and I share this with Amy Allen, um, who is also writing on the uh, revisiting psychoanalysis in terms of critical theory um, and uh, saying that we need a, we need a theory of the subject, like after post-structuralism kind of said, that the subject was so problematic and gave us Foucault and, and Butler, like somehow we're devoid of an ability to think about subjectivity anymore. And I think it's a real concern because people feel helpless and what they're thinking about is often governed by what they see on their social media. Um, and they're repeating that and people are very, um, much less diverse than I remember them ever being in my lifetime. Like the headlines keep getting repeated. Every conversation I have about Trump is just <laughs> the same as the last conversation I had about Trump. And, and I feel like people are not, um, uh, are not able to think creatively anymore. Um, that it's been, uh, that the, the, the media universe has been so overwhelming and that the, and I have returned to psychoanalysis and I know how annoying it is. Like you're always looking for your mother's penis. <laughs> and um, uh, But I think that 
you know, Juliet Mitchell had it right that this is where ideology, ideology functions. And there, there's ways of getting into psychoanalysis that I think that we really need to go back to that material. Gail Rubin and those are, um, early 70s uh, perspectives on the subject before post-structuralism kind of became so hegemonic. It's interesting that you should go back to someone like Juliet Mitchell, who was an immensely important for people of my generation. Mm-hmm. Immensely so. And of course, along with Charles Taylor and Perry Anderson and Stuart Hall, part of the, in many ways, quite post-colonial formation that created the New Left Review mm-hmm. back in the early 60s. So that's fascinating, I think, a return to a kind of psychoanalysis that is a little more anchored and almost certain than its reiterations and declensions through post-structuralism. I had a question for you, not about that, but about what you're encountering. And I wonder what part the pandemic has to play in that. Uh, In terms of students, these are young adults who had some of elementary school or high school or college years hugely disrupted in ways that made life smaller than geopolitics, but more intense and where everyday survival seemed paramount, along with a sense of fear and risk. Now, of course, it varies in its impact depending on where you were in the world, but I wonder whether that has had something of a forceful effect on young adults in particular, who never knew anything else. I imagine that's true, but I think it, it, it there's a lot of stuff going on. Like something like Gaza, which preoccupies me constantly, like nightmares, and, and, and I feel so connected to that, that event, but I still don't think I can do anything about it. You know, I'm paying my taxes and supporting it in that way. But I, I, uh, um, if I wanted it to stop, like I don't feel like I can do that. And um, and I think with students, it's even more that way because they don't shush. They don't have memories of the '60s and '70s when that I an idea that you could actually make radical changes in in the '70s. Um, we were, we meaning my community of children were writing letters to Soviet dissidents in jails, Jewish Soviet dissidents. And we were told that this was scaring the state, (laughs) that our letters to people in jail in the Soviet Union was making a difference for them. And who knows if that was true, but we did think it was true. Mm -hmm. Um, And other things we were told too, like, planting trees in Israel. Um, we had, I had no conception in the seventies. I was seven or eight and, and I had no idea about what was going on there, but we were told that if we put some money into building trees, we were retrieving the desert from desertification, right? We were irrigating the desert and helping with that whole uh, national formation and going apart in it. And, um, and now I don't think that kids think that way. There's no sense of what you can do to make these things different. 
um, to intervene. So, so I do see the pandemic, but I think it's larger. I think it's mm -hmm. neoliberalism. And in terms of the waking up, having dreamt about Gaza, what does that urge you to do or think? I don't know what to do. Um, I remember after 9-11 that, and, and I wasn't the only one that had this feeling of putting aside research and teaching projects. And I started teaching a class in Middle Eastern literature and started writing different things. I wrote the, um, the, the police policing in a state of terror book. Um, and um, I read Susan Buck Morse book where in the introduction, her book after 9-11, where she says the same thing. She was in New York City for some kind of fellowship that year. And she just put the fellowship aside and had to write about this other thing. And a lot of intellectuals felt that way. Gaza is, to me, a parallel experience. Like, it's just as overwhelming and just as um, game-changing on a global level. And I don't hear people do it, saying those things anymore. I don't hear that people are changing their um, their their scholarly projects and teaching projects. Um, so I think the people are just overwhelmed, and I don't know what to do either. You mentioned earlier neoliberalism, just en passant. I wondered if you could talk to us about what that means to you, and what you would say to those who say. Neoliberalism's dead, it was shown to be bankrupt and ineffectual in uh, 2008, and there's been a return of Keynesianism and even an interest in Marx, but certainly a return to Keynesianism on the part of policymakers in many parts of the world. The state is back in and, and so on. Um, do you think that that's irrelevant because what matters is a certain egotism, narcissism, self-regard and fear that dominates people's thinking? I just, I see the return of the state in some ways, in imperialist ways, but I don't see that those things have ended. Like, I live two blocks from the Florida legislature. They're, they're thinking about a bill about, they have refused to extend Medicare for, um, that the rest of the country is extending for health care. And the reason is that, um, well, one is that they, in particular, there's this one bill about giving children $120 for summer lunches, right? These are starving children. And if they did it, it would cost billions of dollars. So that's how bad that problem is. And the Florida legislature says, that's not a good idea because there is so much obesity in America. <laughs> so, like, there's a, a, the fat children, so we shouldn't feed any children. And uh, and it doesn't look like they're going to come through on that bill. So I, I still think that there's um, a, a retrenchment of the state and a kind of an individualist ethic that I, I link to um uh, neoliberalism and my students are in debt that's part of the reason that I think that they have trouble thinking of how to engage so they're you know they're being asked to uh, buy back their own wages right they're, 
there more and more of the, the the profits from their productivity is going to CEOs and corporations, and then they're going into debt to pay for their schools. So I I don't see that neoliberalism has ended. I mean, maybe it's entered into a different phase, but I don't see it as ended. One of your books is about debt. I wonder if you could tell us a little bit of promissory notes. I wonder if you could tell us a wee bit about that volume. Well, one thing to notice about that is that it was the first publication of that press, which is an online uh, free access press, which was very exciting to be at the foreground of that. Um, but it... Uh, it was it's a very um accessible um engagement with literatures that deal with getting debt at the same time as it was using literary criticism to talk about the way we create value without reference so it's using post structuralist ideas to talk about that um and i started in the victorian age and i talked about uh the eustace diamonds where the the diamond who's linked to a woman in the novel to a female character um, is has no substance and it keeps changing and it's kind of a symbol, but it's also kind of uh, the idea of debt itself that gets traded around and stolen and used in various ways. And then there's a legal apparatus of who it belongs to and how you know its value. So um, there's a, and it's at the beginning of the financialization of the 19th century in 1870. Um, and I link it to certain economists that were writing at the time. And then I move from there and I talk about how that diamond um, is is uh, connected to uh, British imperialism and the idea of the colony and in that novel, but also, uh, you know, the, uh, the Moonstone, for example, was uh, is a reference in Eustace Diamonds um, so that the, the diamond itself becomes an idea of, of the colony. And then I bring in post-colonial novels that, and plays that are um, referencing debt and in similar ways and how that evolved through the 20th century. Um, so it's a short book. It's accessible. It's it's a little bit naughty because I moved from the 19th century to the 21st pretty quickly. Um, but did, uh, did you say nutty or naughty or both? Not, nutty. Nutty, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and... <laughs> One of the a couple of themes that are very important in your work, and there are many, are gender and a better want of a better term, globalism or internationalism. That you have a number of books and many articles on on these topics. Um, I wondered if we could explore those issues for a moment, perhaps. So you know, maybe starting with gender issues, which you've in a sense touched on uh, already. Uh, with some of your references, but the importance of gender in your work, because you've looked at it from a wide variety of angles. Mm -hmm. um, can you ask a more specific question? Sure. There's so much of it, and I, I don't know how to actually explain it all. I understand, and no need to explain everything. So, for example, um, you have a book called Infertilities, which is from quite a while ago, like I think over 20 years. Right? Mm -hmm. And that touches on one of the most complex and uh, deeply felt experiences of gender and particularly of various notions of femininity. And I wondered if you could 
talk to us a wee bit about that, for example? That was another really nutty book because I started I'm focusing out, on the nutty ones. I started out with Conrad and I wanted to talk about um, women, women characters who were infertile. And so I focused on this novel called Chance, which was published in 1913. And it was uh, a feminist novel by Joseph Conrad. (laughs) And it was his first most popular book during his lifetime. And and it was published in America. Um, So that was really, it it deals with Conradian themes. It would be familiar to people. Um, There was only like, 10 articles in the 100 years <laughs> since its publication. So it's kind of easy to go through all of the criticism really? on it. And, uh, and then I moved from there to like late 20th century Latin American literature. Um, I talk about Alejo Carpenter and uh, The Lost Steps. And, uh, and then I talk about Vargas Llosa. And at that time, I went to his house. <laughs> it was right after the election where he lost. And because he lost, he decided that Peru shouldn't be able to have his houses. So he burned down two of them. <laughs> and so there was one left that had his library in it. And I ran into some people in New York, you know, just at the gym that knew the people that ran this archive and connected me to them and also let me stay in their houses in Lima. <laughs> and, um, and I got to go through his stuff. It was not very helpful. It's a better story than a scholarly, uh, but it was it, it was interesting to be in his house. Um, and then from there, I talk about uh, a, a, a thing that was going on at the time, a current event, where um, the Paya Khan, who was a leader of the Kayapo in Brazil, an indigenous group, um, he was celebrated on the national stage. He was involved with the body shop. He was a kind of figure of environmental, indigenous environmental movement. There was a story in Brazil about how he had raped a white woman kind of on the frontier between the forest and the the city. And there was a a bunch of interesting stuff that was happening about that. So I was, I don't know if any of these stories connected to each other, but I was interested in this figure of the infertile woman in both of them as a kind of border concept. And uh, that was my dissertation. So, so it got turned into. Okay. Yeah. It was a long time ago. (laughs) Fun things that um, critical theory and cultural theory kind of allowed cultural studies at that time. Like if I had a student that was writing a dissertation like that, I would, I would encourage them not to like, don't deal with all of this geography too much of it. Like how can you do Conrad with Vargas Llosa? I would say, and, uh, and what is your argument overall? And like, I didn't have any of that. I just saw this neat motif that I wanted to trace in these various texts. And, and so it was, it was pretty exciting to do that. So uh, two other books I wanted to ask you about in, in gender terms um that bring us closer to the present so maybe a decade after that one comes out is feminist theory in pursuit of the public where you look in part at gender issues in concert with the big frankfurt boys uh 
Adorno and Habermas. I wondered if you could speak a little, a wee bit about that one. Um, at the time, I was working on neoliberalism in particular and how it recycled um, the public and private divide, and it used gender to do that. Um, and I was really interested in um, in theory where I could work that out. Um, some of those Frankfurt School books are hard to talk about in terms of theory and they're in terms of feminism, and not very many people were doing it. Um, I think there might be more now. There are some people, but it was hard to get an angle on that. But I was particularly interested in neoliberalism and how um, it used gender to renegotiate that um, divide. So I was saying that in the industrial capitalism that Marx wrote about, that you had this idea of reproduction and this separate sphere, um, and yet... Um, in neoliberalism, you don't really have that anymore, but you have you have people that use um, the the that divide to talk about certain types of labor that were feminized because they were separate from the state or separate from the public. Um, so deregulation zones and maquiladoras and and things like that. So I, I wanted to 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 go through some of that theory. Um, and I think that was the one where I also talked about the blogs from Baghdad, Baghdad Burning. Yes, you did. Yes. Where that was, um, when I was working as well, where she was talking about being stuck in her house because of the, the invasion. And yet at the same time, the public was hard to keep outside and she was constantly washing her house. And, and um, yeah, so that was right, right during the war. And then 10 years later, going into the, well into the present, you have this book about um, gender and commodities. Right, that's the most recent one. Um, that was my engagement with popular culture. Um, and I was interested in particularly how gen gender and femininity mostly, I, I don't think I talked about masculinity, but femininity had become a kind of commodity object. Um, and it was something alien that was confronting us as something hostile. Um, and it was manufactured. And um, and I talked about various instances of that. Um, there's you know, this idea of the waves where each generation becomes a kind of object of how they use gender. Like you talk about the third waivers and how they talk about the second waivers as something that's a finished project. That's, that's like a thing um, where uh, they didn't do certain things and they were too white or too universalist. And of course, if you look at the second wave texts, um, they don't do anything like that, right? They 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 might not be engaging with race in the way that that you would want them, but they are definitely engaging with difference. And there are all of the you know read someone Simon de Beauvoir, and there are all these aspects of it where you can take it into a critique of imperialism or take it into um, different types of readings. And it's not up to the people to do that; it's up to us as readers to 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 think about the applications and where we recognize the ideas and how to use them now. So um, 
So I wanted to kind of think about other ways besides this idea that gender is an object. Um, you know, Judith Butler has been very important to my work. Um, and she doesn't actually do that when she talks about the symbolic. Sometimes the symbolic seems like an object that's out there, um, but it doesn't actually exist until you embody it. So it kind of is, it's challenging for the idea that gender is a commodity. Um, and so I did popular culture. I did some film in that. Um, I talked about um, a film called um, A Girl Walks Home at, Alone at Night. It was, a, it was made by a young woman. It was her debut feature. She she financed it on Indiegogo. And, uh, and it's uh, about an Iranian woman who wears a hijab who at night becomes a vampire <laughs> and sucks the blood of the pimps of her village. Um, and I talk about that idea of feminism as, as being prepackaged with the idea of empowerment and how it was part of an, uh, kind of American ideology that was anti-Iranian because of the way that, um, women are, uh, are confined. Um, and then there's this other idea of agency, but then, when the woman is the vampire woman escapes from this horrible place where she has to be a vampire, she ends up driving into the wilderness and it looks like she's just going to become a neoliberal subject because she's rejecting the overbearing state of the fundamentalists. So, and there was no other option besides those two. So I kind of talk about how gender is used for those kinds of ideologies. This is <clears throat> This might make it seem as though you've moved away from literature over those 20 years, but you've also edited and written a lot on literature. Um, you, Bloomsbury has become one of your homes as a publisher. And in particular, you've looked, amongst other things, at feminist theory and around the world and world literature. Could you tell us a bit about the optic or the perspective or the set of optics and perspectives that can enable or disable this very internationalist view? Well, in terms of literature, I am a big fan, not only a fan, but I think that the fact that it's retro makes it even more important than ever. Um, I think there are health benefits I know that sounds nutty, but I listen to audiobooks when I'm at the gym and my heart rate goes down. And I think there's a sense that life is moving so fast now that, that, uh, if you're, if you're engaged in a novel, it slows your body down. And it, it's, there's a calming thing that happens because you're no longer rushing from minute to minute or from screen to screen. You're actually in a long-term thing. Movies do this too, but not as much as a novel does. Um, so, and I, I've never actually studied this, but I have a friend who actually is studying it. And she thinks too that there, there's actual health benefits that she's been able to see in the brain from reading literature. Um, and I wish more people would be, would be thinking that literature was a way of getting entertainment because there's a lot more, I, I don't know, I, I think it's, uh, there's more of a kind of critical edge to a lot of it and to our, to what reading means. 
um, that you don't get if you're online all the time. Um, so, but there was another part of your question about internationalist. Um, what were you saying about that? Well, I was asking too many questions in one, for which I apologize. So I wanted to know how one can conceive of and write about world literature or world literatures. What enables a cosmopolitan vision, for want of a better term? What does one need to do to go beyond reading, which is perfectly legitimate, the literature of the country where one grew up and nothing else? Yeah, my my degree, my, my graduate degrees are in comp lit um, at NYU. So um, that was kind of the paradigm of it. And uh, I think you just put your feet in. Like, who wants to read about yourself? <laughs> and I found that, like, early on, it, it gave me, like, a thirst for travel because I wanted to go visit the places I was reading about. And um, I didn't really need a context because the context was however, wherever in the novel you were identifying. Right. And then you might be wrong. And the second time you read it, you identify differently. But um, there's always a place where you can find a way in. And if you don't totally understand the culture, so you don't, you don't master the novel but you don't master the novel anyway, right? And then you learn about the culture through reading the books. Um, and uh, yeah, I think I never actually really theorized it. It just seemed like, you know, even if you're in high school, and I wish this was true in high school now, but you're in high school and you're reading Faulkner. I, I grew up in Boston. Um, you're reading about a different place. And even if you're reading about the person next door, you're kind of reading about a different place. So it's kind of d degrees of of uh, difference. And so I, I never, I thought that literature was always engaged with otherness. Oh, that's so interesting. And would you juxtapose that with fiction as opposed to literature? No, I focus on the novel. Um, and I like the length of it. That's that's why I focus on it. Um, and uh, so I can't really equate it to other things. Like it seems like what if if you're thinking about theater that you're and you're reading it, you're only getting half the game because um, you're not getting the performance part. Mm -hmm. um, and with poetry as well, I think that it's shorter um, and. Yeah, it, it doesn't fit into my paradigms as well, the things I want to think about and talk about. Um, got it, got it. And, but yeah, I think other people could do that to to think about other forms of literature. And, you know, one of the things that growing, getting your graduate degree during the heyday of post-structuralism did is Derrida was dominant and there was no, he didn't make a distinction between philosophy and literature. And that was part of his project, right? It's like we all think that that these two things are so separate, but it's, it was just another one of his binaries that he broke down. <laughs> so I took that to heart. Like I thought that these are just ways of thinking the future and thinking 
our relationships to other people. And um, so it never, it was never something I wanted to define or think about as, you know, literature as and with a big L kind of thing. Right. And of course he, his work helps to point out the logocentric interdependence of what appear to be opposites. Mm-hmm. Such as the shifting terrain between what counts as fiction and what counts as literature in mm-hmm. book review sections or bookstore sections, if such things still exist. Right. Yeah. One of the other things you've done a lot of is editing. You've put together a number of books. Could you tell us about the task of editing and what it's like? Um, it's really frustrating to have to deal with other human beings because <laughs> um, when you're writing, you don't have to near, do that. But other people, like I'm a type A personality, I meet deadlines, but other people don't tend to do that. Um, and so then you have to kind of track them down. Sometimes like I was recently, I shouldn't say, say this, but I was recently working with Hortense Spiller she was really late. Um, she was doing all these interesting things that I got to kind of talk to her about because she was giving me excuses about why she was late. And they were all really good reasons. And she invited me to some of her talks that were online. Um, but yeah, so so there's that part of it that people don't meet deadlines. Um, I tend to want to be light on the editing and um, get people that I trust and topic writing on topics that I trust and then so being more heavy-handed at the initial stages and then um, not being heavy-handed at the end and being more like doing line editing at the end Um, so um, yeah I don't know what more to say about that that all started I was I was um, having lunch with Ray Ryan he was a visiting speaker at the university and I was going to pitch a book to him and we were just at lunch and I said, I have this idea about how all these feminist theory theorists also are novelists. And, and so I was trying to, you know, why is that? And how does the idea of fiction or the literary poetry is in there too? And there are some plays, how does that influence um, theoretical thinking? And um, so mm-hmm. he said, that's a great idea. And then it became a book like immediately. So um, Yeah. What do you think? Sorry, go ahead. Uh, also, I write for the for the book, so I'll, the, we have you, you're in my book now that I'm doing a book on film as world literature, um, and um, and I'll write a chapter as well as an introduction. So the, the, it's a more focused type of writing because you're just writing a chapter rather than a book. But um, there seems to be a tendency that's emerging in which rather than editors of collections reaching out to people whom they know or with whose work they're familiar, but rather just saying to the whole world, as it were, via listservs or posts on other forms of so-called social media, I, we are editing this book. It's about blah. If you'd like to propose something, please send it along. And Part of me responds to this thinking that's great and demotic and I like it and it is going to encourage more emergent voices. And part of me thinks that's lazy. Yeah, I wouldn't do that. 
I wouldn't do that. Maybe because, well, my first response on hearing you talk is that um, I want to, I want my books to be engaged with theory, which is not a common thing anymore. Um, and I want them to be, um, to have good politics, by which I mean to be on the left. And so I don't want to do wide ranging calls for papers. I want to find the people that are writing on things that I, I think need to be promoted. So more curated. I wonder if I could get you to enlarge a bit on that when you said there's not much that's to do with theory nowadays. Mm -hmm. um, well, when I was in graduate school, it was all theory. I didn't take any courses in, in literature that I can remember. It was there was so much excitement and there was a sense of um, breaking down disciplinary boundaries. So like I go over into sociology and read Foucault or Zygmunt Bauman or you know whoever. And uh, Henry Giroux is someone who I've known for a long time and whose work I really respect. And um, I guess he's working in English department now, but he's um, he wasn't then. And um, so that that possibility of interacting in spaces that you're not an expert in, but you can still read and have a thoughts about, um, and uh, and also, um, yeah, the Frankfurt School and post-structuralism are like fundamental to any kind of way of engaging culture for me. Uh, the things that are going on now, and I blame Duke University Press for this, but it feels to me like there's a lot of thick description out there, like people describing their identities or things that are mostly identities, um, and they want to talk about them as being mixed or intersectional, and that's not the same as what the Frankfurt School was trying to do. They were trying to end capitalism or end fascism. These are questions that get sidelined when all you're doing is describing identities. And uh, those are the questions that I still need to be think need to be central, especially with fascism on the rise. You edited a book about the relationship between Adorno, modernism, and the contemporary. And I wondered if you might speak to us a wee bit about that. Um, yeah, that's part of a series on uh, understanding philosophy, understanding modernism. Um, and I was asked to write on Adorno, which I was a little bit surprised at because I thought I was known as a feminist theorist, um, but very proud because I don't think you can think without Adorno. I think that he's always central to everything. Um, so uh, and then when I started to talk to people who are Adorno scholars, um, I uh, realized that Adorno scholarship had gone way beyond Adorno. So I got people writing on film, people writing on animal studies. Um, I got someone who was working on education. Um, so a lot of different, and I also one of Adorno's students, believe it or not, wrote for it. Um, so uh, yeah, I, I found that the, the scholarship had moved on beyond the concerns that Adorno had. And uh, and so it's more exciting than because Adorno and modernism, that's, you know, common like that's 
a lot of people, Adorno is known as that, right? And I was worried that it would be hard to do something on that. Um, and it turned out that the writers were pushing Adorno into different areas. Um, so I found, I did find it exciting in the end. <laughs> <laughs> so you mentioned feminist theory, and it's been one of the things we've touched on a little bit in our conversation to this point. I wonder if you could tell us a little bit. I have a house guest arriving, so I'm just getting the, the door of the building open. Okay. This doesn't have to interrupt us more than my doing things like, here's the bedroom. <laughs> okay. Um, so the state of feminist theory or theories today might seem like an absurdly big question, <laughs> for which I, I apologise in a sense, but I wonder if you could take us through it, because in the previous podcast which I was conducting with Lynn Spiegel. She talked about post-feminism, and I realized it was an expression I hadn't heard for a while. So I, I, I don't wanted... like that term. No. In fact, after after that book with um, Cambridge and Ray Ryan, he wanted me to, um, to, to try to write something on after-feminism, and I found that really difficult even to, to think about. It. I never ended up doing it. Um, but I didn't want to talk about after feminism because it's not like we don't need it anymore. And I read Simon of Our, I read Simon of Our students and mm. they see things in it that they, they are like really into it, you know, and I, I don't see that there's any kind of post-feminism. I see the ideas as open and um, relevant and mobile, and um, and uh, we still need to think with them. So, um, you know, and I, I know a lot of feminist theorists have moved on to other things. Mostly, it seems, Judith Butler is writing on phenomenology and um, and Israel and. Chuck and Rose is writing on Israel. And so some of those people from that time are moving on. But I, I find that genders, that their theorizing of gender is still part of their projects. Mm-hmm. And, mm-hmm. and I, um, I'm not ready to move on. And actually, I find that students, like 10 years ago, if I asked my students if they were feminists, they would say no. Almost all of them. And then I would say, well, do you believe in a woman's right to choose? Do you believe in equal pay for equal work? And and they would agree with all that, but they wouldn't want to, they wouldn't want to call themselves feminists. Um, now it's overwhelming. Like everyone wants to um, call themselves a feminist and they're all engaged in thinking about their relationships and their sexualities and how they think about that. And, um, and I'm, I'm not sure that's necessarily a good thing for feminism, um, but it, it 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 is very vibrant and open and and active, and people are living it. So I'm not ready for the post-feminism thing yet. I'm not, and there's no wave thing for me. I get the thing between the first and the second wave, because the first wave seems to be 19th century, and the second wave seems to be late 20th century, and I see different issues because um, the late second in the late 20th century, you don't have to think about suffrage in the same way. But um, <laughs> but I still think all those issues are need to be engaged and worked on and 
um, and uh, activated and um, and criticized. Uh, if there's something that we don't, you know, Simon Bar in the introduction has this reference to harems and how we have to define ourselves against that. That's the imminence that she doesn't like. And, you know, it's, it's, I don't find it easy. It makes me bristle, but so there's, you don't have to love this stuff to be able to learn from it. I think that's a wonderful expression. In terms of some of the different currents or channels of feminist theory, the psychoanalysis of a Jackie Rose, for example, uh, or strands that are closer to Marxism or strands that are connected to trans issues and so on. Do you see these things as compatible or incompatible? Well, both. And I think the incompatibility needs to be theorized too. I mean, as an Adornian, <laughs> it doesn't bother me that there are contradictions. Um, uh, and we have to live with those. But I, I see, you know, like someone like Paul Preciado, I, I would say that he's a feminist. Um, and he is one of the people that have gone beyond Butler. Um, and uh, and I think that um, and he's doing really important work that really speaks to students as well. Um, and uh, so, and I think that he has a critique of feminism and a critique of Butler, and, um, and he's a student of Derrida, so he's working that into kind of body politics kind of thing. So um I don't I don't think that it, that just because it's incompatible that therefore it's not productive to think through or to think in the contradiction. A true dialectician, but <laughs> not necessarily wedded to uh, an overarching and final synthesis. So As a Floridian I'm not into censorship. <laughs> don't tell this Santa's this, but I don't like book banning. So I don't think that we should, um, that if we disagree with something, it means we shouldn't read it. I think that the, that the disagreement itself is, um, it creates thought, right? It creates productivity and n new ways of thinking. And so, you know, like if anyone was reading um, Theodore Herzl's one of the 9-11 moments I had to go in I, when I was doing the, the Middle Eastern literature, I went and read The Jewish State, which I don't think people read anymore, and for good reason. <laughs> it kind of is like the most anti-Semitic book I've ever read. It's uh, It basically says that Jews have to leave Europe because they smell bad. <laughs> they should move into the Middle East and, like, I think it's worth reading that. It doesn't matter that I disagree with it. Um, it gives me a, a better sense of history and what things were like for Jews in Europe at the time and what their plans were and how much of it came true and how they made it come true. So, yeah, I, I think that not reading something or just because you disagree with it is not a productive thing. I think that's DeSantis's project. I'm interested at the moment in the way in which people who 
were making a lot of noise about so-called cancel culture and blaming this on uh, the left are now interested in shutting people down. Yeah, I was noticing that too. Masha Gessen, like she was just shut down. I that is crazy. Yeah, and also, um, they it wasn't only cancel culture. The book banning. Um, they were after Bill O'Reilly got banned, and now he's asking DeSantis to rethink his book banning policies because his own book has got banned. Kind of makes you happy a little bit. <laughs> God, there's a name I haven't had to think about too much for a long time. Well, Prof, I've got a couple more questions for you, if I may, and then I'd like to throw it to you to ask questions, or sorry, I don't mean to ask questions, to add or subtract anything in terms of what we've discussed. Yeah? Mm -hmm. And my first of the last two questions is to ask you what's on the docket now? What are you thinking of working on, given that you're going through these Gazan nightmares? Is that on the docket? Or is it saying to people, let's go back and look at Juliet Mitchell? I'm interested in that Juliet Mitchell thing. I was working on a, a project that got waylaid on ideology. And I thought that that was a big issue, that um, people were no longer, in an Althusserian sense, they were no longer being identifying themselves in the in the call. They could no longer recognize themselves. And I thought that this would explain why Americans don't like either of the, any of the candidates that they're that are on offer, and that um, and other things too. I they just didn't identify with the things that they were that they were being called to identify with. Um, and I, including like, how can we be so sure that you know the environment is about to implode and then not to be worried about that like to be going about every day and so i really wanted to talk about psychoanalysis and um and uh an ideology and return to to halsey's air but i ended up getting waylaid because um i was talking to some people at routledge who wanted me to um work on a book that I'm working on now on um, a class that I've been teaching since 2016 on third cinema. Mm -hmm. And it's not exactly on third cinema. I start out there, but then I talk about third cinema's influence on filmmaking later. So it, it's called third world cinema. So I start out with our the blast furnace and um, the aesthetics of hunger and so some of that in Battle of Algiers, um, mm -hmm. Barren Lives. And, and then I get up to Oppenheim, Joshua Oppenheimer's film, um, uh, the one about the killers. Uh, mm -hmm. And then uh, so I've been working on that. And right before Gaza, I was working on the chapter that was on Palestinians, Palestinian filmmaking. So. Oh, really? That was kind of a little bit unfortunate because I had to go back and rewrite the chapter. It wasn't like things totally changed, but I felt like it had become newly, uh, I had to um, make it uh, more like 
we're going through this now, like more contemporary. Um, so um, yeah. that's there's probably a, there's a be, new group that's just started in the last couple of days that has hundreds, perhaps now thousands of signatures called mm-hmm. Fifty Workers for Palestine. Mm-hmm. And I think we're going to see some very interesting and very confrontational and disputatious moments in cinema and in the curation of cinema over the next few weeks, months, and years, as this becomes such a very topical issue. Right. I'm just giving a glass of wine to my house guest who's come on a long tr- train ride. <laughs> <laughs> Are you drinking red or white? <laughs> It, well, I gave her red, but I didn't ask her, actually. I just figure it's winter and it's been a wet and cold day here, and perhaps that's what people want. But if she doesn't drink it, I'll know that that's not what she wants, and I'll give her winter. <laughs> She's ensconcing herself in the spare room. Anyway, so <clears throat> the current project is about third cinema, great, and a very important one. And as you say, not just that concept that we've had for some time now, but as it plays out in other kinds of cinema too. Yeah? That sounds terrific. And my last question before throwing things over to you is to ask how you choose themes for your work, how they come to you. Sounds as though sometimes publishers just say, Prof Goodman, would you do this? And you either say yes, no, or maybe. Or I pitch something and they say, well, not that, but what about this other thing? Yes. <laughs> that happens too. Yeah. Um, I tell students that uh, you wake up in the morning and it's, you know, the world is fucked up. And then you're like, well, what am I going to work on today? It's kind of, you have to like, the problems that really matter, those have to be your focus because there's no point otherwise. And they have to be your focus in teaching as well. It's it's both. Um, and uh, so, so I think that's how I choose is like your question of what are you thinking about what's bothering you now is the first question that you have to ask every day. And then you have to somehow engage with it. And one of the things that worries me about the form of careerism that is instilled into so many people in academia now, because they feel desperate about being able, being able to construct careers rather than having any great confidence, mm-hmm. is that uh, frequently it seems as though they have to drop the element of passion that first alerted them to what was interesting in favor of all kinds of other explanations and justifications and can get very lost as a consequence of leaving to one side the question of what matters to them. Right. They have to create an identity and their their idea of identity is based in expertise of a thing. Like I am the world literature guy or I am, you know, this other thing. And then you can't read other things. I like to think that I, what I'm doing is reading interesting things and not reading boring things. So 
So that's how I choose what I read. And if there's something boring in my field, I don't want to read it. <laughs> so, Prof Goodman, can I invite you now to add anything or perhaps subtract something from what we've talked about? Well, you know what I thought you were going to, after listening to a lot of your podcasts, what I thought you were going to ask about was Florida, which we never got to talk about. I thought we were going to talk about book banning and and uh, my involvement um, with the union and um, we, the fact we have a faculty union, the United Faculty of Florida. We're very active and we're very under attack. Um, right now, uh, there was a bill passed last year that said we had to have 60% membership and we have open shop. So that has been a real challenge and we might be decertified. So we're really under attack. And uh, I was also involved in um, a court case where we sued DeSantis um, on uh, Bill HP 233, which was an anti-shielding bill. Don't ask me what that means, but we weren't allowed we weren't allowed to shield students from uncomfortable ideas. Um, which the next year they passed another law that said that we had to shield students from uncomfortable ideas. So, but it also allowed for allows for students recording faculty during class without their consent when they're gathering evidence against them. So we were suing, uh, it, it was a Mark Elias law firm that was uh, helping us with that. And we sued them on First Amendment in federal court. Um, and it was, I had never, you know, everything I knew about the law, I learned from Kafka. <laughs> so okay. I was expert um but um in the end after about three years um where we had the better arguments um the the judge who is uh seemed to be in our favor ended up throwing out the case and when i read his decision um he kind of said that he was throwing out the case based on standing because the law was unenforceable so in losing, we kind of won. And one of the provisions was an intellectual diversity survey, which um, they implemented one year. They had like a 9% turnout, turnout um, and then they never implemented again. So I thought maybe I should sue them for breaking their own stupid law. <laughs> but uh, yeah, so, so they're not really implementing the law. And um, so that was really exciting for three years I did that. Um and we're That's still engaged in the fight. What you don't hear about DeSantis, because you hear from him, like how he uh, gave the law, gave the state over to the conservatives, and he thought off, off the left, and he made Florida free of the woke and all of that. But what you don't hear is that none of his legislation is actually being implemented because it's all being litigated. Like you can get an abortion in Florida because somebody sued. And eventually, you know, those decisions will come down. But he's bragging about a lot of things that didn't happen because it was challenged. And and Floridians aren't just going to, they're still involved in struggling over their state. It's not, the, the newspapers kind of get demonized DeSantis in a way that gets the fact, that forgets that it's always a struggle, that you can, that people are pushing back against some of this and and sometimes they're winning um and uh so that's what we're doing we're we're pushing back we we won something today 
against the, the draconian HB 266 law, which was the one that stopped all critical theory. I was supposed to ban it and said that you couldn't talk about so, uh, structural inequalities in class. And um, it was very detailed and long about things that it was banning from the classroom. And they tried to throw it out of court and the judge ruled in our favor. So uh, that's moving forward and we're going to continue to fight it. Um, so I just wanted to to bring that up as like, because people, especially young people, are are so cynical and they're so they feel so helpless, and yet we're involved in these struggles and we're winning some of them. So I think it's important to point that out. I think that's a wonderful point and a, a great set of stories. I deeply admire what you folks are doing under very difficult circumstances. And yet again, people who claim to believe in the First Amendment constantly work against it. Yet again, people who want free thought don't want it. Yet again, people who complain about cancel culture want to cancel culture. Right. The canceling was a terrible idea on the left. That was, we want, democracy should always be the referent, in my estimation, not censorship. We should be able to win with a better argument. Well, Professor Robin Goodman, thank you so much for being so generous with your time. Thank I, you for inviting me. I'm honored to be on your podcast. It was great. All the mm -hmm. best. All right. Thank you. Enjoy your wine. <laughs> <laughs>